Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Amy Foster. I'm just delighted to be on your teaching team. And personally, I'm just so happy to be able to study the scriptures with you in spite of the distance we're experiencing right now. I'm thrilled to be studying the book of Joshua with you because Joshua is full of amazing stories. And I just read recently, Old Testament stories teach us how to experience God. And I know that's true for me. You know, we can all imagine the story. We can imagine the place and the surroundings and the characters. And we can imagine ourselves in the story. What would I do? How would I respond to God? But we have the great advantage of knowing how the story ends. So we usually always end up on the right side when we put ourselves in the story. That's how I want us to look through these stories today, considering how we experience God. Chapter two is where we're studying today, Joshua chapter two. There's two great stories here, two great things happening simultaneously, and they're both secret missions, but they're founded by the same faithful, steady, true God. Our God is uh, authoring both of these secret missions. So before we start, I want us to remember where we are in the big story of the children of Israel. The children of Israel story goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, when God came to one man, Abraham, and he made a great promise to Abraham. He said, from you, from your family, I'm going to make a great nation and I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the entire world through you. And we know that Abraham had a son, Isaac, and Isaac had a son, Jacob, and God repeated that promise to all the sons. Jacob would then have 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. They would grow from a small family to a mighty, mighty, numerous group of people during their time in Egypt. And remarkably, that would happen during a time when they were enslaved. God would come to them and rescue them. He would take them across the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and he took them right to the edge of the land that he'd promised to give them. They sent spies into the land to scout it out. And the spies came back with a glowing report of the land. But the spies had the wimpiest faith in God. They refused to believe that God would go with them. They cowered in fear and insisted to all of Israel that they could never take this land, even though God had promised he would take it for them. That happened 40 years before our story today. Because of their wimpy faith, God sent them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They were delayed by God because of their lack of faith and because of their disobedience. But now it's 40 years later and under the leadership of Joshua, God has given them the green light. It's time for them to go in and take the land. They're camped out on the plains of Moab. And you have a map in your study questions. We're gonna put it on the screen right now, um, a, a simpler version here. I want you to see where they are. You'll see the Jordan River, which ends down at the Dead Sea. They're just above the Dead Sea, northeast of the Dead Sea. Israel is camped out at an area called Shedem. And I want you to know that's just seven miles to the east of the Jordan River. And they've already had some pretty phenomenal military victories here. They've already started taking some land east of the Jordan River. But when they talk about the land of Canaan, the promised land, they're really looking at everything west of the Jordan River. This entire area is the land that God has given them. I also want you to notice Jericho on your map. 
That's just seven miles west of the Jordan River. So the camp is seven miles east and Jericho is seven miles west. I want you to pay attention. That's just 14 miles in between these two cities. Well, Jericho was an important commercial center, but I think Joshua had his eye on Jericho because it was just a strategic location here on the frontier of the land of Canaan. Joshua has the plan that the conquest of Canaan is going to begin at Jericho. That's where he will strike first. Now, we talked a little bit about the land of Canaan last week. I think it bears repeating. Canaan is the entire region to the west of the Jordan River, where you see on your map, Canaan is made up of various city-states. Jericho is just one of those cities. And most of those city-states have their own kings that rule them. Jericho is known, and Canaan, excuse me, is known both historically and in our Bible for their wicked behavior. They're known for their abominations. That's God's word that describes their behavior. Their behavior included incest, adultery, fornication. Their behavior that centered around cult practices and worship of false gods included child sacrifice, the defiling of virgins, and that's old language. Modern language for that would be sex trafficking, rape, and sodomy. They were also known for bestiality, for idolatry, for the use of mediums, and witchcraft. God describes all these behaviors. He talks about them at length in the book of Leviticus. And all of these behaviors, God has told his people, those are outlawed for you. You cannot behave that way. That's not permissible for God's people. Look at what God said in Leviticus 18, verse 24, specifically talking about all this wicked behavior in Canaan. He says, do not defile yourselves with any of these things. For by all these things, the nations are defiled, which I'm casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity or its sin upon it. So right away, when we consider what's going on in the land of Canaan, we have to consider how do we experience God in this story? How do we experience him? Right away, we know God knows, he sees what's happening in all of his creation. God is aware, he's not blind. God has a holy standard. And when God's holy standard is violated, God's justice will descend. It will be the result. Our God does not turn a blind eye towards sin. He punishes it. That's how Canaan is going to experience God in the book of Joshua. So that's the setting for secret mission number one. God's first secret mission in chapter two is to spy out the land of Jericho. So read with me in your Bibles, Joshua chapter two. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shedem as spies, saying, go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. So Joshua has decided Jericho is their entry point. But before they attack, I think as the military leader, he wants to know a little bit about the lay of the land. He probably wants to know, what's the topography like? Are there places we can hide or will we be visible? What's that mighty wall like? I think he probably wants to know, what about the people? Are they strong and mighty? Do they look like giants? He wants to know, so he's sending spies into Jericho. Remember, 14 miles between the Israelites' camp and the city of Jericho. Our spies sneak into the city and they take lodging at a surprising house 
We're, uh, we're told that they lodge in the house of Rahab, and she's a prostitute. So that sort of makes for an interesting story right off the bat, doesn't it? The actual word in Hebrew that was used to describe Rahab is the word harlot. We know from history and from the Bible that prostitution was quite common in the ancient world. And we also know that there was a specific type of prostitution that was always involved in cult worship or the worship of false gods in the temples. The fact that the word used here is harlot suggests that Rahab was not one of those temple prostitutes. She was probably the kind of prostitute that is common in the world we live in today. We also know from history that it was normal for a prostitute to live and work in the same place. They would live in taverns or inns or places sort of like way stations. These would be common places for traveling men to stop. But not every traveling man was seeking a prostitute. And there's nothing in this text that suggests that our spies are seeking that. Our spies are seeking information and a way station would be the perfect place to get information. It would also be the perfect place to blend in and be inconspicuous, but that doesn't work so well for them. Turns out they're not inconspicuous. Keep reading in verse two with me. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman Rahab had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said to the king's men, true, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly for you will overtake them. But she had brought the men up to the roof and hidden them with stalks of flax flax that she had laid in order on her roof. Okay, I hope you noticed right off the bat, the king, the ruler of this land is making a command to his subject Rahab, bring the men out. It's a stern command. I also hope you noticed he's not asking any questions. Rahab, are there men in your house? Are the men from Israel? Are they here to spy on us? He's speaking with certainty. He knows those men are in her house and he knows where they're from and why they're there. Now that kind of causes me to wonder, how does he know? How does he know this? And I don't have an answer for you, but I started speculating. And as I read and studied, a lot of people speculated along the same lines that I did. Do you think Israel is the only one who uses spies? Do we really believe that? All over Canaan, they know that the Israelites are coming for this land. They know that the Israelites have had some mighty victories already. And it's not like the Israelites can sneak around in the desert unnoticed. There are millions of them. So I want you to imagine this story. This massive, mighty army of God is poised 14 miles away, ready to attack your city. 14 miles. I looked at a map. That's two thirds the distance between the Fort Worth campus and the West campus. That's not very far. It's a little more than a half marathon. I'm not much, but on a good day, I can walk a half marathon. On a great day, I could jog one. It's just not very far. Ladies, do you think if your enemy were 14 miles away, you'd be watching them? You'd put some eyes on them and you'd wait to see what they were doing? I'm speculating, speculating 
But I think the moment those spies left the camp of Israel, they were watched. I think they were watched until the moment they crossed Rahab's threshold to her home. And so God's secret mission is threatened here as their identity is known. But we see that protection comes from the most unexpected person. We don't yet know why, but Rahab takes these spies and she hides them on the roof of her home. It was common for these homes to have totally flat roofs. It would be a great sunny, dry place to lay out stalks of flax or wheat. And Rahab puts the spies up there and covers them with the stalks and she hides them from the king's men. And then she goes on from there and she employs some pretty unscrupulous means to secure their protection. What exactly does she do? You may have noticed this. She lies three times. She lies flat out to the king. I didn't know they were Israelites. They left the city through the gate. I don't know where they went. Really, she knows exactly where they are. And then she deceives. Hurry, quick, go catch them. Her methods are effective. The pursuers rush out, and this is interesting to me, they head to the east. They head across the Jordan towards the Israelite camp here. I want to point out that years later in the book of Hebrews, Rahab will be commended for her faith. She's never commended for her lying and for her manipulating. She is commended for her faith. I think what we can learn here, Rahab's occupation, her problem-solving strategies, those show us Rahab is a sinner in need of God's forgiveness. That's who Rahab is. And that also shows us that that's God's second secret mission. He's here to save Rahab. Let's read verse number eight. Before the spies lay down, Rahab came to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to King Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. All right, God is saving Rahab here. He's not just saving her from the national destruction that's coming to Jericho and Canaan. He's saving her from a life alienated from God. And I can imagine this so well. We think it's late in the day. It's warm and sunny up on that roof. I think the spies are probably sleepy and then Rahab rushes up there to tell them all she knows. And I imagine those spies are pretty wide-eyed because at this point, they don't know Rahab. They don't know if they can trust her. And here's an interesting thing. I read that this speech of Rahab's, it's one of the longest uninterrupted statements by a woman in the Bible. Okay, think about that for a minute. The longest uninterrupted statement by a woman. I read that and chuckled. I guarantee you a man developed that category. Only a man would pay attention to how long a woman's speech is. Okay, I want you to imagine these wide-eyed spies. They're tired, I think. They're men, which means they've already used up all their words for the day. But here comes Rahab, and she unloads all these words on them. And it begins with, I know. 
I know. And she's a Middle Eastern expressive woman, so I'm confident she's waving her hands. I know. It's all certainty, no doubt. She's expressing what she knows with great confidence. She knows that God has promised this land to the children of Israel. She knows it was God who caused that miraculous parting of the Red Sea and it rescued Israel out of Egypt and then it destroyed the Egyptian army. She knows it was God right over on the other side of the Jordan River. King Sion came out against Israel and Israel fought and destroyed them and Israel started claiming land and cities and territory there. The same thing happened a little further north with King Og. You can read about all of that in Numbers chapter 21. She also says, I know how all the people of Canaan have responded to this news. They're terrified. They're melting away in fear. This was a gold mine for spies. They just learned that Israel's history is completely known in Canaan, and they've just learned that their enemy is melting in fear. The enemy has no fight. Guess what? God had already promised them that this exact same thing would happen. Right before they did battle with King Sion and Og on the other side of the Jordan there, God spoke these words, Deuteronomy 2.25. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you, and they shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. God is doing exactly as he's promised to Israel. And here is one great result. Rahab is moved to faith. She makes this incredible statement of faith here. The Lord your God is God in the heavens and on the earth beneath. So I want us to take just a minute and unpack Rahab's statement. In your Bible, you may notice she says the Lord and Lord is written with all capital letters. And that tells us that the Hebrew word used there was the name for God, Yahweh. Yahweh, it's the name for God that literally means I am. He is the eternally existing one. He existed before anything was created. He will exist after. It also is the deeply personal name for God. When the children of Israel were about to confront the Pharaoh and they said, who will go with us? Who is sending us? God used this name, tell them I am is with you. It was deeply personal for them. So Rahab in this succinct statement, she's saying she knows who God is. She knows that he reigns everywhere in heaven and on earth, and he's reigning right now in Rahab's heart. We have to remember that the Canaanites worshiped a whole pantheon of false gods, numerous gods like Asherah and Baal and many others. What Rahab is doing here, she is not adding Yahweh to the list. She's not dropping him into the pantheon full of all those other false gods. She's claiming he's the one, he's the only, he's the true God, and she's claiming he is her personal God. And it's a profound proclamation here. As we look at this passage, there's a really important contrast that we don't want to miss here. It's as if there in that desert sand, a line is being drawn across the desert, and those who oppose God are on one side, and those who are with God are on the other side. I want you to pay attention to this contrast. Rahab has heard of God, and hearing of God, she believes, she puts her trust in God, and she chooses faith. 
Rahab steps over the line in the desert, the line that divides pagan culture from God's people. But pay attention to this. The people of Canaan heard the same thing. They heard all the same stories. They had the same knowledge of God, but they don't believe God. They don't put their trust in God. They don't choose faith. It says instead they melt in fear. They melt in fear, but it's not a shaky, quaky kind of fear. It's a fear that causes them to line up opposed to God. They are strapping on their swords. They are getting ready to fight God and the people of God and the plans of God. The difference between Rahab and everyone else in Canaan is not Rahab's great character. The difference is Rahab's faith. Listen to what is written about her in Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So in the big story of Israel, God's holy justice is about to descend on Canaan. It will be ferocious and it will be total. But ladies, the conquest begins with mercy and grace. Rahab gets to experience mercy and grace. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? No one. No one could stand. But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. As I read this story, I recognize Rahab's sins are many, but God's mercy is more. When a sinner puts their faith in God, they step over the line of unbelief. They step into the place of mercy and grace. So what do we learn from this today? God makes himself known to everyone. In all times, God makes himself known. Today we have his word, we have his activity in the world, in history, in our own lives, and we even have nature. God makes himself known. So we have to ask, how do we respond to the knowledge of God? I need to warn you that neutrality is not an option. A line is drawn and there are only two sides. Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. The idea displayed and expressed through the whole Bible is God is gathering to himself a group of worshiping people and they're people of faith. And everyone who doesn't step across the line and join God's people, they stand opposed to God. C.S. Lewis fictionalized the story of Christianity in his children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia. I'm sure many of you have read the Narnia series. And in that series, Jesus, who is the exact representation of God, Jesus is portrayed as a great, fearful lion, a mighty lion. And there's one wonderful scene where a young girl, Susan, is about to meet the lion, and she timidly asks, is he a safe lion? Is he safe? Meaning, am I free from fear, free from worry, free from harm with him? And Susan gets her answer. No, he is not a safe lion, but he is good. Not safe, but good. 
That's the picture of God that we're going to see all the way through the book of Joshua. God's character is holy and righteous. That means he will always judge according to his perfect standard. Ladies, no sinner is safe under the awesome judgment of God. No sinner is safe, but God is also good. He is good and he's merciful and he's gracious and he's forgiving to those who choose faith and cross the line and live with him. In the weeks ahead, we are going to look closely at the conquest of this land. The battles are going to be deadly. They're going to have terrible, deadly consequences. And I wanna be straightforward with you. You're going to have a hard time looking up close at the justice of God. It is frightening to look at it, but I want to remind you in those weeks ahead to remember how the conquest begins. It begins with God making himself known to all the inhabitants of the land and giving them all an opportunity like Rahab to cross the line into mercy and grace. You know, I don't believe that God needed Rahab to save the spies or to accomplish his purpose in the land because God's actually said numerous times he's already given them the land. I think God is merciful and gracious and that's why he puts Rahab front and center in the conquest story. And ladies, there couldn't be a person lower on the social strata of the day than Rahab. She was a woman in a place that didn't value women. She was a prostitute. Everyone considered her unclean and defiled. She's a scheming, manipulating person with a truth-telling problem. Rahab is low on the ladder, but God knows her, and he knows faith is flickering in her heart. And so God moves the story to Rahab's house to save Rahab. Now the two missions of God have merged. They're together. Rahab's actions uh, makes a little bit more sense to the spies. She's aligned herself with Yahweh God. And so now she's going to align herself boldly and decisively and pretty demandingly actually with the people of Israel. Her long interrupted statement continues in verse 12. She's speaking to the spies and she says, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men, the spies said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Okay, it's interesting. Rahab describes her actions as kindly to the spies. And then she asks, will you also deal kindly with me? She's actually made a covenant with them by putting her life at risk and hiding them this way. She's made it a pledge and a promise that she's going to stick with them. And the really interesting thing about this passage is the use of the word kindly. The word there is a Hebrew word, hesed. And it's a word that God uses to describe himself. If you studied with us last summer, we spent a lot of time on this word hesed. Hesed means the loyal, steadfast, faithful love that's based on a covenant or a promise. Rahab has risked her life and made her promise. I'm going to stand with the people of God. And now she asked the people of God to make a similar promise 
or a covenant with her. Save us as we line up with you. Save us. This is a high watermark in the passage for me because Rahab and the spies are both acting with hesed. They're both making a promise and a pledge to be faithful and true, and they're both going to be steadfast and loyal to that promise. It's a high watermark because they're both displaying the character of God. They look like God's goodness here. And I have to stop and notice that's what happens when faith overrides fear. When faith is the greatest thing in our life, then the image of God that is supposed to shine out of our life, it shines pretty brightly when faith is above fear here. All right, Rahab will go on and very boldly and with a commanding tone, she's going to make the escape plan for the spies. Her house is actually built into the city wall, the big massive wall that protects the whole city. And so her plan is to throw a rope out the window and let the, sky, the spies escape that way. And she sends them into the hills with instructions to hide there for three days. Now the hills actually refer to a mountainous region about a half a mile to the west of Jericho. And if you've ever traveled to the Holy Land, this land makes a pretty significant visual image because it's craggy limestone cliffs. And it almost looks like honeycomb. It's full of caves and crevices. It's a great hiding place there. She sends them to the hills which are to the west Rahab is a pretty smart chick. I want you to remember where she sent those king's men who were looking for the spies. She sent them to the east, across the Jordan, back towards the camp. Her plan in sending the spies west will keep them perfectly safe, prevent their detection, prevent their capture. So with that escape plan in place, the Israelites turn to Rahab before they climb down that window and they add one more condition to this plan, this covenant. Verse 18, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father, mother, brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in your house, his blood will be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we will be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And Rahab said, according to your words, so be it. And then she sent them away and they departed and she ties the scarlet cord in her window. All right, she has to mark her window with this scarlet cord. That's a, a signal flag to the Israelites as they come back into Jericho to attack the city, to show them where Rahab is. She must gather all her family members inside her home, latch the doors, lock things up tight. They can't leave and they can't tell anything. Can't tell anyone. Don't tell, don't tell. That's repeated several times here. It shows us Total allegiance to God and to God's people is what is being required of Rahab. It also shows us Rahab has stepped so fully across that line. She is, has no allegiance left with the culture of Canaan. Now that red cord makes for some pretty powerful storytelling. It's wonderful visual imagery. 
It takes us back to the Israelites' days in Egypt when God sent all those terrible plagues on Egypt. The final plague would kill the firstborn in every single household in Egypt, except for the children of Israel. If in faith, they would shed the blood of a lamb and put it over the doorpost of their home. They would gather all their family members inside, latch the doors, and wait there in faith for God's salvation. And God saved them that night. That red cord is also visual imagery that takes our mind forward to Calvary, where Jesus' blood was shed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And from that time on, everyone who calls on Jesus in faith, we are symbolically placing ourselves under the blood that was shed on the cross. And we wait there and we find salvation from God there. God's mercy and his grace always makes a way for sinful people to become God's people. Let's read the end of the story in verse 22. The spies departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills, passed over, and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So the modern language for that is, the land is ours for the taking, and the enemy has no fight. It's such a great statement of faith, and you can't read this spy report and not compare it to the earlier spy report from 40 years earlier, where the people refused to believe the promise of God. That was a significant spiritual failure for Israel when fear overrode faith. But this report here, it is all faith. Actually, the whole chapter is all magnificent faith. Consider that the spies take all these obedient, dangerous steps to execute God's plan, and they bring this positive report back, expressing total trust in God's promise. That's great faith. Consider Rahab. She risks her life and the lives of all her family members taking courageous steps of faith to correct God's people. And then don't miss God's faithfulness in this story. It's all over this story. God protects the spies when their identity is discovered because he's already promised to make them successful here. God sends fear and anguish into the hearts of all the Canaanite people, just like he said in Deuteronomy that he would do. God saves Rahab, being faithful to his words in Genesis 12 to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. Rahab was in that promise expressed hundreds of years before. And ladies, don't overlook this. All of us were in that promise from Genesis 12 also. God said to Abraham, I will bless you and all the families of the world will be blessed through you. That happens for all of us because Jesus would one day come from this nation. And remarkably, Jesus comes from the family tree of Rahab. Is that unbelievable? Rahab would go on to marry an Israelite and they would have a son named Boaz. You may remember the story of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer who marries Ruth. They become the great grandparents of King David 
and from the line of King David, Jesus would be born. And the whole world would have the opportunity to find salvation under the blood of the Lamb of God. God is faithful. That's the message of this story. He's establishing his people in the promised land. And along the way, he's showing his mercy and his grace as he pulls in people like Rahab, pulling them into the family of God. His mercy is overwhelming in this because he makes a way for Israel in spite of their many past failures. And he makes a way for Rahab in spite of all her imperfections. So as I read this story, I stop and ask myself, how do I want to experience God? And right away, I know I want to experience his mercy and his grace, not his judgment and his wrath, so that I have made the decision and crossed that line. I've lined up on God's side. The other thing I notice in this story is I want to experience the kind of courage and boldness for God that I see in these people. Courage is going to be a theme all through Joshua. So I want to take a second and talk about it. Courage is not the absence of fear. That's not what courage is. Courage is moving forward with God in spite of your fear. Or to quote John Wayne, courage is being scared to death but saddling up anyway. That's courage. It's putting fear in its proper place, which is down below faith. Fearful and difficult things will happen in all of our lives. We know that's true. And so we need courage to move through those frightening days with perfect confidence in God, with confident faith. So here's what I learned from this story. It was the knowledge of God that brought courage and boldness to these people. It was Rahab, I know, I know, I know. Knowledge of God brought her confidence. As I think about this, I consider that knowledge of God comes to us two ways. First, knowledge of God comes to us right here through his word. This is the standard. This is the absolute irrefutable knowledge God wants us to have about himself and his activity in the world. When we read his word, we study it, we take it in in our head, and his word begins to change us and begins to make us bold and courageous. That's very clearly what happened to Rahab. She learned facts about God, and it gave her courage and boldness. There's a second way we get knowledge of God. Oftentimes, God uses a different word for knowledge. He says, know me, but it's a word that means intimate personal knowledge. God says that often. It's similar to the, it's knowing God, similar to the way you know the family members who are in your house with you all day long, or the way you know your best friend who's walked through all the ups and downs of life with you. That kind of knowledge only comes from personal, up-close experience over time. Now I'm speculating here, but I think the spies have that kind of knowledge. I think they've lived with God in the barren wilderness for 40 years. They have known God's word, his promise that he's with them every single day. They've known his promise that he would provide for them. But every morning they woke up hungry and they had to live with God in that day and trust him to bring food and water. They've known his word that every day he would direct them. But every morning they have to get up and they can't set out on their own plan They have to stop and wait for the direction of God. They also have God's word promising to give them military success. 
but they can't wake up in the morning and plan their own military battles. They have to wait for instruction from God. In all these experiences, they gain the most personal, intimate experience and knowledge of God. Today, we have both opportunities, don't we? Both cause our courage and boldness to grow. We will all have scary things that happen in our lives. We will have early, dark mornings when we wake with a start and we cry out, God, are you here? Those things come to all of us. And I want you to know it's okay to ask that question. That question comes from the knowledge of God who says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So we will rely on our knowledge and we'll ask if God is there. We can know his words. But I think we have to then take the next step and we have to get the intimate knowledge of God. We have to get out of bed and walk through the next scary day, inviting God to be in that day with us. And when we do that, we get a new kind of knowledge. Here's what we figure out. Yes, God is with you. Yes, God is here. We figure out over time that God's been out there ahead of us, establishing our next step. And we figure out over time that God comes behind us and he heals and he binds up those broken things. And we realize over time, God is all around us. He's filling us with his strength and his wisdom and his presence. Living with God in this way brings personal, intimate knowledge of God. And that always increases your courage and your boldness. So as knowledge of God increases in your life, here's what happens. You stop asking, God, are you here? And instead you say, God, I know you're here. Give me eyes to see you. Help me see you. So ladies, if you want courage, know God, know him. He tells you who he is in his word. He shows you who he is when you invite him into your life. What you do with that knowledge makes the difference between fear or faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you can be known, that you make yourself known, that you give us your word, that you enter all of our circumstances with us, that you are present and you are real and you are faithful and you are merciful. All we can say is thank you. I just ask for your help. I ask for your help to know you more each day, to trust you more each day, and to have courage and boldness living for you and with you. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.